So, um, tonight I want to talk about some of the difficulties that we bump into, the un, you could say the unbidden difficulties that arise in the course of uh, coming here and spending this kind of uninterrupted time with ourselves. It's such an unusual activity for most of us. So I'd like to begin with a, a saying, and I, I've used it for years. I don't know where it comes from, but it's just one of those those sayings that um, you will bump into now and then that are good. This is a saying, Who is my enemy? Who is my friend? My mind is my enemy. My mind is my friend. You may appreciate this saying a little bit more after having sat for two days. Right? And here we are speaking of the mind in in a more of a Buddhist sense, not as just the thinking mind, not as the content of our thoughts, but our capacity to be aware. The mind that knows, the mind that that uh, can be aware of what is occurring. The Buddha said, no other thing do I know which brings so much suffering as an uncultivated and undeveloped mind. No other thing do I know which brings so much happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. So meditation is meant to cultivate our mind to be more of a friend than an enemy, the source of all the good qualities that we sense are inside of us, our potential Buddha nature, the source of, is in the source of our mind, the qualities of generosity, compassion, wisdom, love, joy, kindness, clarity, all of this exists and will and is cultivated through this practice comes out of the mind the source of all the troublesome qualities also lie in the mind the the, the qualities of aversion and fear and anger and lust and jealousy and pride they too Uh, lie within the mind. We can even say that the mind is more of a determining factor of whether we are suffering or whether we are uh, feeling uh, peace than our external circumstances. This is very much a Buddhist view that our real happiness lies within, as Sylvia Borstein's book says, happiness is an inside job. It doesn't depend so much on our circumstances as on the qualities of mind that we are actively cultivating. We're not just sitting around hoping that something good will happen, but we are learning through mindfulness and then tonight through the loving-kindness meditation that Howie introduced to you, we are learning how to actually train the mind in ways that will help us in our lives, that will support us no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in in our lives. Here's a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. With mindfulness and concentration, the energies of the Buddha... You can find your true home in the full relaxation of your mind and body in the present moment. Your true home is not an abstract idea. It is something you can touch and live in every moment. No one can take it away from you. Other people can occupy your country. They can even put you in prison. But they cannot take away your true home and your essential freedom. Lama Yeshe wrote about the same understanding in a slightly different way, a little more humorous. It's 
it's from a teaching he gave called When the Chocolate Runs Out. Chocolate comes, chocolate goes, chocolate disappears. All such transient pleasures are like this. But take heart. There is another kind of happiness available to you, a deep abiding joy that comes from your own mind. This kind of happiness is always with you, always available. Whenever you need it, it's always there. So this is, this is the meaning of um, having a mind that is an ally, that is a friend, that is a, a source of, of comfort, of strength, of courage, of love, a source of happiness. So, this mind, and when the, in the Buddhist sense, when mind, the word mind is used, it really means mind-heart, mind-heart. If you, if you ever speak to Tibetan people, they will, you're talking to a Tibetan person, they'll say, my mind. They don't point up here, they say, my mind. They think of the heart as being the center of consciousness. We've, we've separated it up here, but never mind. The, the meaning is both, mind and heart together. So this mind-heart in all of its various expressions is the focus of mindfulness practice. We are actively... Uh, learning about the mind, beginning to work with the mind, beginning to see how we can influence the mind to move in more positive, wholesome direction. Mindfulness is called a purification process. It, it's like cleaning out the, the attic, you know, or the garage. You know, we go, we say, okay, I'm going to finally clean out the attic. And you go up and you start opening boxes. And boy, are you surprised because you find things you didn't even know were there. It's very much like coming on a meditation retreat and and opening yourself to, you know, you don't know what you're going to find. You hope that you're here to find peace and happiness and, you know, joy, well-being, all those good things, and those are beautiful things to aspire to, but what happens? We sit down, we start to open, and my goodness, we find ourselves full of anxiety. I had no idea I was so anxious, so we find ourselves full of judgment. Oh my God, look at me, I'm judging myself every 30 seconds. Anybody recognize any of this? This is what happens when we sit down. We discover that there's a lot of stuff that we couldn't have anticipated, we didn't know was in there. And mindfulness is here to help us start to release it, to let it go, so that when you leave here next Wednesday, I can promise you, because I, I almost without fail, you will feel much lighter. You will feel unburdened because some of the extra baggage you've been carrying around some for years it will not be all gone, but it will be considerably a lighter load that you leave here with. So, as we open, as we practice, we bump into many states of mind, some of them desirable, some of them difficult. So perhaps by now you have bumped into worry, anxiety, judgment, loneliness, fear, boredom, restlessness, doubt, irritation, anger, confusion, longing, lust, obsession, compulsion, struggle, despair, grief, restlessness, helplessness, self-pity, unworthiness, shame, guilt, and more judgment. What have I left out? (laughs) It's a long list, isn't it? The possibilities are rather overwhelming. 
Paradoxically, these are signs that the practice is actually working. As I said, this is a this is a uh, purification. This is a release of that which is causing suffering in our lives. So inherent in this path are what we experience as obstacles, as hindrances, as demons, as things that we we don't know what to do with because they torture us and we feel unhappy when they're present. Call them what you will, the difficult mind states that arise when we turn inward in a continuous way and when we are not distracting ourselves. This is what we get. Sometimes we call Spirit Rock a detox center because really what is happening is a kind of mental, emotional detox. You are letting go of your usual addictive uh, obsessions, pursuits, distractions. You recognize that. So, um, so we talk in, in this tradition, in most Buddhist traditions, talk at some point about what are called the hindrances or the obstacles. In the Theravadan tradition, the five classical hindrances that are spoken about are one, greed, greed, that obsessive craving and clinging in the mind. This is not wanting, uh, like wanting to learn meditation. This is not an example of greed. That is, there is a distinction between greed, which has more of an obsessive, uh, compulsive quality to it, or, uh, cra- or craving, that is different from wanting. We want many things, some of which are wholesome, positive things to want. So not to condemn all wanting as bad. Sometimes people do that. But to see that greed and is greed is what you can't let go of, which has you in its grip, in its grip. Then there is aversion, the opposite state of mind of wanting to get rid of what is unpleasant, of not liking something, and having an aggressive attitude about about it, about the need to get rid of it, to to push it away, to not want to be around it, to wanting to annihilate it. It is the source of rage, of violence, of anger. But it can also manifest as fear, as boredom, as irritation. That quality of mind that is known as aversion or not liking. So greed, aversion, doubt. Doubt is considered a hindrance. That mind which is goes is is caught in an argument with itself it 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 sees something that creates doubt and it and it goes on and on and on and then it doubts the doubt and it goes the other way and goes on and on and on never arriving at any satisfactory conclusion because in the realm of the mind there's always the possibility of another train of thought that will Um, dispute the previous train of thought. So it just goes around in circles, that quality of doubt that never gets resolved. You might feel doubt in yourself, you might feel doubt in the teachings, you might feel doubt in the teachers, you might feel, you know, this is a sham, this is, there's nothing, you know, something like that. The fourth uh, hindrance is sloth and torpor. That's pretty descriptive, isn't it? Um, many of you have mentioned having a bit of sloth and torpor as you're uh, wading into the retreat. Um, that quality of dullness in the mind, of just not having the energy, sometimes just not having the interest. 
you know if there's just no there's no interest so there's there's no there's nothing that sparks you to want to open or learn or you know show some energy nothing to get out of bed in the morning for so to speak and the fifth hindrance is restlessness and worry that agitated state of mind that is just all over the place the body that's restless it can't find the right posture when it's sitting it wants to walk when it's walking it wants to sit it wants to go here it wants to go there it can never settle that lack of settledness so you may have already experienced many of these if not on retreat in your lives and they are seen to be states of mind that are uh, workable that we can with mindfulness begin to learn how to work with them so tonight I want to talk about um, some of the ways in which mindfulness can work with these hindrances and other difficult mind states and the first thing to say is um, they are workable and the first encouragement is to not try to get rid of them by ignoring them or you know pretending they're not there or by uh, running away from them I mean these are things that humans do but instead with mindfulness we are encouraged to get to know them because the basis of mindfulness is this kind of wisdom that what we are learning is how to be wise in our response to difficulties so that we so that they do become workable and so we can find a way to learn from them to open ourselves to them so that we they actually become a path of wisdom Gurdjieff somewhere here he wrote there are a thousand things which prevent one from awakening which keep one in the power of one's dreams in order to awaken it is necessary to know the nature of the forces which keep one in a state of sleep so what is it that keeps us in a state of sleep that's a really good question so I'd like to ask you that question and leave it with you what are you seeing about that what keeps you in a state of sleep there's not one universal answer there are answers but I think I would like to leave you just with that question for you to sit with it what is it that keeps me asleep is there something I'm not seeing clearly is there some way I I'm confused or not not really interested in seeing clearly there are many answers to that question so the first encouragement is to turn towards a difficult mind state arises the first encouragement is to turn towards it to be curious about it to open ourselves to it to uh, shift our attitude towards what is difficult the poet Rumi wrote this poem this being human is a guest house every morning a new arrival a joy a depression a meanness some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor welcome and entertain them all even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture still treat each guest honorably they may be clearing you out for some new delight be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide 
from beyond. In other words, we can learn from all these uninvited guests. They are something that we are needing to learn. So we get to know them by turning towards them with mindfulness. And now I want to talk about how to work more specifically with uh, these states of mind. And I want to give you four kind of essential steps that will help you in beginning to work with them. The, The steps are recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-identification, which comes out very neatly with the acronym RAIN, which you can easily remember, RAIN. So this is, this is mostly what I'll be talking about from now on. The suggestion is that all four of these aspects of mindfulness, you could say, are are essential ways of learning to work with a difficult mind state. That if any one of these is missing, that mindfulness has not completed its work. So the first, recognition. This means simply when something arises that feels difficult or unsettling, to ask yourself, what is this state? What is it? Is it despair? Is it worry? Is it longing? Is it loneliness? Is it self-judgment? What is it? By looking directly with mindfulness, with this questioning and opening, openness of mind, we begin to discern what is, what is present. For example, if there's craving... Is it, is it craving for something in particular? Is it craving that's just sort of a vague longing? Is it, a, 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 is it lust? Is it, a, is it a preference? Is it a strong like? Or Notice the effect of it and notice what it is. Oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about when he said craving in the mind. That's something worth getting to know. Not as something that we have to get rid of, but something that we can actually explore. Or if anger arises, can we feel it? Can we recognize it? Can we let ourselves know, oh, this is anger. This is what this is. This is anger. Now, for a number of reasons, we may not immediately recognize what we are experiencing. There's a New Yorker cartoon I brought with me that uh, is an example of what can happen when we don't recognize something that has arisen, but we just go blindly into reacting. So this is a cartoon of... uh, a woman being interviewed in her living room by a policeman. There's a body on the floor, a dead body on the floor, a woman sitting on the sofa, and the policeman is taking the report from her, and she says, he misspoke, I misheard, then shots rang out. (laughs) Clearly, a lack of recognition of something that had arisen, but instead just a blind reactivity. Now, there are other reasons for, that we may not recognize um, what, has, what is present. We may have a story about the kind of person we are, which prevents us from seeing what is actually present. We may think, I am a good and kind person, which may prevent us from recognizing how much judgment or anger we actually carry. Because there's a prohibition against that. I am a good and kind person. I don't do anger, so therefore it doesn't exist. Or we could say we may have a belief that I am a bad person. I'm a really bad person. I'm unworthy. I'm not good enough. I'm never good enough. And that may prevent us from recognizing generosity when it arises in ourselves or genuine caring about something when it arises in ourselves. 
Or we may have a, a belief that certain emotions are unacceptable. Fear is unacceptable. It's not okay to feel lonely. It's not okay to be ashamed or to feel sorry for myself or to feel too proud. It's not okay to feel fabulous, to feel really great or to feel anger. If we believe that particular emotions are unacceptable, we won't allow ourselves to admit when they have arisen. And perhaps particularly in the context of a meditation retreat, you may have a script going on that in a meditation retreat you should have only a certain kinds of emotions and not others. Does anybody have that? You know, in this hall you shouldn't feel certain things because this is a grand place or something. So, uh, so those are some of the reasons. Another reason we may not recognize the emo- emotion which has arisen is because it is so habitual. We all walk around with very low-level, chronic states of mind that we don't recognize. We're so used to them. We don't see them. So we may, see, we may discover them in the body. You may discover that your jaw is just really tight. Or you may feel that you're suddenly holding your breath. And you realize you've been doing that all your life. These, the body will hold sometimes unrecognized habitual states of mind. We may not recognize the presence of some states because they are so unfamiliar to us. They are new to us. We will bump into many states if you continue practicing that you have never experienced before and therefore you might not recognize so easily. I I tell the story of many years ago when I started practice and I I had a lot of intensity and all kinds of emotional things and it was all very exciting. I never got bored. I mean, I was just always working on something. And then finally, after a couple of weeks, it all sort of died down and it felt like, well, there's nothing happening anymore. I've lost my meditation because it was just so, just nothing going on. So I went to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and I told him, and he smiled, and he said, Anna, I think you're beginning to experience calm. <laughs> and that was a revelation to me. It was like, calm? I don't do calm. I'm not a calm, I'm not a calm type person, you know. At that time, it was completely unfamiliar to me. So that will happen in different forms to all of you. So this willingness to open, to ask ourselves what this is, what maybe you have to keep asking, you have to keep exploring, you have to keep opening. What is this? Let give yourself some space and time to explore, to sort out, to discern what it is that is present. And in doing that, we are cultivating this capacity to meet ourselves with clarity, with honesty, with a kind of intimacy. Mingzhi Rinpoche, Tibetan Lama, said, ultimately you must choose between the discomfort of becoming aware of your mental afflictions and the discomfort of being ruled by them. If we don't allow them to be recognized, if we don't meet them consciously, guess what? They go underground and we end up, you know, acting them out or like the woman shooting her husband. You know, we end up being ruled by the things that we don't make conscious. Or there's a tendency in some spiritual circles to want to transcend to what is do what is called the spiritual bypass, just just transcend all the negative, messy uh, mind states and go to some transcendent reality where you can just 
you know, hang out. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. It's a very rare person who can pull that off. So these messy human states of mind, uh, what's good, I, I, I want to always remind all of us that they're workable. And that's what the, the path becomes, this sense of working with the difficulties. And by that, increasing our capacity for courage, for compassion, for wisdom. We learn so much in facing these. So the next is, so that's the first step. The next step is one of acceptance, of acceptance. The need for acceptance of what is present, say, uh, jealousy arises and you know, we, oh, God, I, this must be jealousy, but you don't really want to accept it because it doesn't fit your image of yourself or you don't feel good about yourself if you, if you let yourself know that it's present. And it doesn't mean that you're stuck with it, that then it becomes a definition of who you are. It simply means that you are accepting what is true that this, you're being honest with yourself about what has arisen. This is jealousy. Well, let me explore that. Let me see what that is like. Can I do that without judging myself, without beating myself up for it? Can we turn towards what is present, not with judgment, but with curiosity? With curiosity. Oh, isn't that interesting? Jealousy, I... What is it like to, to experience that in myself? Mindfulness itself is not judgmental. Mindfulness is neutral. It doesn't have an opinion for or against anything that arises in our experience. It's like it's likened to a mirror. You know, if you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you and there's this uh, this this feeling of like, oh, oh my God, you know, what's wrong with this person? And, you know, it's not the mirror that is saying that to you. It's coming, judgment is coming from your own personal opinion. Mindfulness is simply reflecting something that is present. So if we are judging ourselves, we can also be mindful of that. We can see that with that that sense of impartiality. Everybody judges. Everybody has most of these states of mind at one time or another. So accepting what is present is this quality of being honest with ourselves. And honesty is essential on this path. It is a liberating force in the mind to be honest, to be true about what our experiences. The Buddha said there are two kinds of suffering, the suffering which leads to the end of suffering and the suffering which perpetuates suffering. The, per, the suffering which perpetuates our suffering is all the forms of not accepting what is here, of resisting, of judging, of denying, of blaming. Those are all ways of trying to avoid accepting the reality of what is here. The suffering which leads to the end is the practice of mindfulness itself, opening to all that arises. Jennifer Wellwood, a local poet and Buddhist practitioner, wrote this poem that expresses this very beautifully. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome 
transforms me. And that is the truth. It's a paradox of this path. So recognition, acceptance. The third step uh, is investigation, the quality of investigation. It's a word that perhaps isn't quite right, but it's the only one we have. It is an attitude of mind which not only accepts what is present, but is curious about it, which turns towards it and says, teach me, what what do I need to learn from this? The Zen poet Basho instructed his students, learn about the pine from the pine, learn about the bamboo from the bamboo. That's a great instruction for poets or painters. In the same way, we can say with mindfulness practice, we learn about the breath from the breath. We learn about pain from the pain. We learn about joy from joy. We learn about desire, craving from craving. We learn about anger from anger. From bringing this uh, non-judging, careful moment-to-moment attention to our direct experience. This is experiential learning, knowing directly in the, in the immediacy of the moment. We learn to see through these eyes rather than through thinking about things. Usually in our, in our world, we think the way to solve our problems is by thinking about them. And this is a different approach. From the point of view of mindfulness, thinking about our problems is a way to hold on to them. It is what the Buddha called unwise attention. Whereas mindfulness is this direct, immediate experience of things. It is preconceptual. It does not rely on thought. It relies on awareness, on this capacity to know. So, for example, if anger arises, how would we investigate it? First of all, with any of these states, we notice there's a lot going on. And anger is a good example because it's often quite vivid. So when anger arises, we notice many things. One, there is a story. Every one of these difficult states comes with a story. What is the story of anger? It's usually a repetition of something that happened. He said this, I said that, they did this, uh, and pretty soon you're all worked up. So it comes with a big story, and a story of what you're going to do next, or you know what, what, what is going to happen in the future. So we notice the story. We notice that there's a lot of sensations in the body. Anger has a lot of heat in it, sometimes a lot of energy, maybe fire or tightness, contraction. So we begin to explore that with our mindfulness. We can let go of the story and just feel the impact of anger in the body, in the, in the cells, in the, in the flesh, in the muscles in the way that we, our posture, we can begin to explore it, the sensations of it. So by doing this, we are learning directly the nature of anger. And over time, it becomes more familiar, not necessarily comfortable, but we stop being so alarmed when a strong emotion arises like anger or fear. We're not so overwhelmed because it feels like, oh, I know this. I know what it's made of. I've been here before and I've been able to be present with it. Therefore, it doesn't have to overwhelm me. And this takes some time, takes some attention, takes some interest to do this, but it can be done. The Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, um, 
the story is that he sat all night determined to awaken and that during the night he was visited by all the hindrances, by doubt, by restlessness, by sloth and torpor, by greed, by anger, all these things came to visit him. And they are personified in the, uh, in the mythology of Buddha, in the figure of Mara, M-A-R-A. He is per, per, uh, portrayed as the, uh, you could say, the shadow side of the Buddha, the, the, the forces of obstruction. And he would come around to test the Buddha so he would come on the night that Buddha was sitting and masqueraded at all, all these different states. And what the Buddha could say is, fear arose, lust arose, whatever it was. He could say, I know you. We have met many times before. I am not fooled by you. I am not frightened by you. I know you. I know you're, you're uh, impermanent, you're not going to be here for too long. You come, you tell me your story, you do your dance. But I know you, we've met many times before. And in that way, he kept his wisdom seat. He wasn't th- overwhelmed or dissuaded from his, in, his uh, determination to awaken. So in this way, we come to know the obstacles by making friends with them so that we can recognize, accept, and know them when they arise. Oh, yes, fear is like this. Oh, yes, self-judgment is like this. Oh, yes, it's like this when I'm lost in doubt. Oh, yes, it's like this when I'm feeling um, worried. We begin to recognize these things. So we learn how these states play and we learn what you could say, you could say that each of these states say self-judgment. It's like there's a recipe. You want to produce self-judgment, then you, you drum up particular kinds of thoughts and feelings. Here's a cartoon that will help you with this project if you want to really get into self-judgment. This is a checklist to feeling pathetic. (laughs) Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. Examine your face closely in the mirror, noting all the flaws. Relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. And resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So we begin to see what things are made of. There's a recipe for self-judgment. There's also a recipe for feeling generous, for feeling joyful, for feeling peaceful, for being happy. That also, like the metta meditation that Howie introduced, that using the loving-kindness practice begins to work on us, begins to bring up those, those feelings of well-being and safety and kindness and happiness and peace. Hafiz said, You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You also carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them. Mix them. And this is what we discover with this marvelous plasticity of mind, that we can cultivate those states that are more beneficial So lastly, the, f- the final step in which mindfulness works with emotions is this uh, step called non-identification. And we could give a whole talk on just this aspect because it's a big subject. 
but it's that that uh, movement of mind that identifies with what is present, usually something negative that we take to be who we are. We take we may take difficult states as a definition of who we are. Loneliness arises, yep, that's me. Self-pity arises, oh yeah, that's me. Not good enough, oh yeah, that's me. That movement of mind that says, yeah, that's who I am, I'm stuck with it, poor me, or whatever. So this is uh, not... uh, like like the other steps, this is showing us a way to release that tendency. With mindfulness, with awareness, we can begin to question the veracity of that conclusion. We, we, we can see on retreat how different experience that we have, often of a negative nature, will lead us to arrive at certain conclusions about ourselves. And in this way, we create our self-image. What conclusion about yourself are you taking to be true? Have you arrived at some conclusion about yourself today? Or so far in the retreat... Take a moment to check in with yourself. Perhaps you've concluded that, you know, this is, this retreat stuff, this is not for me. I'm, I'll never get it. I'm not, this isn't, I can't do it. Or maybe you've concluded that, um, uh, or you, maybe you've concluded the opposite. This is, oh, this is fabulous. This is the way I'm going to live now for the rest of my life. We arrive at these conclusions. And they are momentary, but they feel kind of real. So it is good to see what conclusions we're arriving at. And to poke at them a little bit. To open ourselves to the question, what what would it be like if we let go of that conclusion? So to see this as a habit of mind, and what would it be like to stay open instead? There's a, another acronym for fear, F-E-A-R, false evaluations appearing real. That's the ingredients for fear. False evaluations appearing real. And often the conclusions we draw about ourselves appear as very real. Okay, so in this talk I have tried to convey the possibility of working with difficult mind states that inevitably arise and that we can learn from this process in a very uh, valuable way. Our difficulties can become the path of practice itself. And we begin to see they are not obstacles to be overcome, but the way we actually train ourselves in wisdom and compassion. It is important to see that this is our task, that we are using all of our experience to cultivate these qualities of wisdom and compassion. We are not just here to look for what we like and try to repeat it endlessly. There was a sign at uh, the monastery where Jack Cornfield practiced years ago that said, if you are still following your likes and dislikes, you haven't begun to practice. Now we may shudder on hearing this. What do you mean my likes and dislikes? But there's a kernel of truth here that if we can take in and open, we can see that something is being offered to us that is way beyond our preferences, way beyond what we like and what we don't like. And that by opening beyond the narrow confines of liking and disliking, we are learning to recognize and accept and know in an intimate way many things about life, many things that we could not have learned any other way. 
And maybe we can say someday like Rumi in this poem, who said, if God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not one difficulty I would not bow down to. So let's sit together for a moment. Who is my enemy? Who is my friend? My mind is my enemy. My mind is my friend. Thank you for your attention this evening. Thank you for your practice today. And there's about 40 minutes now for um, walking in the beautiful night air in this solstice time. And then we'll sit again at 9 o'clock with a bit of chanting. So we'll see you later.